Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina's a happy bunny today because we're back in the 20th century. Alina, who's with us? I'm very happy. So with us, we've got Simon Hall here as a professor of modern history at Leeds University, and he's also a published author. His latest book is a narrative of the year 1956, which was filled with revolutions and rebellions. And today we're going to be chatting about a few of these events that happened around the world. Welcome, Simon. Hi, great to be here. Okay, so I guess we just start with why 1956? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I was asked that um, quite a lot when I was working on the the book. Historians have usually focused on the 1960s and the 50s have always been sort of presented as a kind of a grey and dull uh, sort of prelude to all the colour and excitement of the 60s. But the more I sort of looked at the uh, looked at it, the, the more exciting the 50s seemed to be. So I really like the idea of kind of challenging that kind of myth about the 50s. And the more I looked at sort of 1956, the more I noticed... Uh, parallels with 1968, a year that gets a lot of a lot of attention and a lot of sort of uh, glamour and excitement associated with it. And I began to think, well, actually, you know, 56 is just as exciting, if not more exciting than, than 1968. And so um, that was the idea to write the to write the book about it. Great. So what we're going to do is go through a, a few of those key events that you've talked about in your book. Are we going to leave some out that people might think we we like were major only because we've covered them in other podcasts and focus on some things that we haven't talked about before. Um, Alina, do you want to kick us off? Do you know what? I'm going to kick off with one of my favourite events in 1956, uh, which is in February. And uh, it's to do with the Communist Party. We all love a bit of Communist Party palaver. Uh, it's Khrushchev's secret speech uh, at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, so, so um, Khrushchev, who'd... Um, he basically sort of succeeded uh, Stalin uh, as leader of the, as de facto leader of the Soviet Union after uh, Stalin's death in 1953. He'd um, uh, gradually managed to outmaneuver his main rivals to kind of become the de facto um, leader. Um, and at, at this 20th Party Congress, he decided uh, before a closed session of the of the Congress to, to give a speech in which he um, essentially denounced uh, Stalin and uh, and um, uh, revealed various uh, things about about Stalin's rule, um, and the major thrust of the criticism was that uh, Stalin had abandoned collective leadership and had instead promoted a kind of a cult of personality. And um, I mean, it's called a secret speech. It, it didn't say it didn't stay secret for very 
uh, long. Um, copies were um, uh, uh, were were published uh, for distribution in Eastern Europe, for example, um, and, and uh, they quickly. Um, I think the various Western intelligence agencies quickly got hold of copies and, and published them in, in the in the West. Um, Khrushchev's aim in, in, in delivering this speech was to um, primarily was to try to reboot the Soviet project, which he felt had been taken off course by the excesses of, of Stalinism, and particularly the purges against um, communists that had taken place in the 1930s. And um, Khrushchev also, um, he's, he's quite a sort of a savvy character. He also knew that um, some of his main rivals in, at the top of the Communist Party were, were more culpable for some of those excesses than he was. So it was a way to kind of um, uh, get one over on, on them. Um, but he was playing a very, it was a very dangerous thing to do, a very risky thing to do, because by um, denouncing Stalin in, in quite robust terms, he created lots of problems for uh, the communist leaders in, in Eastern Europe who had kind of modeled their own um, approach on Stalin and had, uh, they were known as the sort of little Stalin. So one of the things that Khrushchev's speech does is it kind of lets that genie out of the bottle and causes causes real serious problems in places like Poland and in Hungary. So it, it kind of has a domino effect in a way that it, it loosens things up, uh, but in a way that, it, as we find out, becomes very difficult to to control. Do you know, I absolutely, for me, his secret speech and what, it, what how basically it causes these ripples to go through the whole world, all because he basically says, well, Stanley was wrong. Yeah, and I think it's it's almost as though he just dropped a sort of massive rock in a pond, really, rather than just a pebble. I mean, it caused these huge ructions. And um, I think if, if Christopher had, had known uh, some of the consequences of the speech, he would have um, tempered his language a bit. Um, I think uh, by the uh, by the autumn, he was certainly reflecting a, a bit ruefully on 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 what he'd done, um, and and maybe that he'd gone a bit too a bit too far. Um, but that was sort of Khrushchev, really. I mean, it's part of his personality to um, uh, you know sort of in for a penny and for a pound kind of thing. It's really interesting. I'm I'm going to throw this in, and Alex is going to go. Oh my god, she's she's going on one again, but. Um, when it comes down to things like, I know you don't speak about Mao and the Chinese in this, but that moment when Mao just goes, oh my God, did he really just say that? And it's one of those things for me where Mao just goes, yep, no, can't deal with Khrushchev anymore. He's denouncing this great, amazing leader, Stalin, who is awesome. And it's, for me, I just, I can't help but laugh. Yeah, I mean, it did help to cause uh, long-term tensions between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Um, I think uh, Mao was annoyed for two reasons. One, he hadn't been told about the secret speech beforehand, so he felt sort of snubbed, if you like. But also, yeah, he was um, pretty convinced that the attack on the cult of personality was a, a none-too-subtle um, attack on his own um, leadership uh, style um, as well. Um, um, I mean, in, 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 in China, there is a brief attempt at, at sort of having a bit of a thaw uh, but then in 1950, um, uh, by the end of 56 and into 57, Mao cracks down pretty hard. Um, and there's some debate about whether um, that was his intention all along to try to coax the, I think he uses a phrase about sort of coaxing the snakes out of their hiding place and then um, and then dealing with them. So it has, it does have 
um, some pretty important consequences in uh, in China as well as in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Before Alina gets completely overexcited about Eastern Europe, I just I'm going to drag you away to Africa because I'm really interested. Can you tell us about the 19th of April 1956 and what happens with the Gold Coast? Yeah, so basically, the um, 1956 is a really important year for for European decolonization, including the uh, decolonization within the British Empire. And within that story, the the place of the Gold Coast is uh, is I think really um, significant. It, it's in April that um, um, uh, as a kind of a de- decision taken, um, basically to allow um, a formal process to, uh, to um, to kind of uh, be undertaken that will eventually lead to the independence uh, of the Gold Coast. Um, they have um, a vote in the Gold Coast and in neighbouring Togoland where they decide to basically join those two colonies together into what's going to become the independent country of, of Ghana um, under the leadership of um, Kwame Nkrumah. Um, Nkrumah is a really interesting character. He was um, initially the British didn't want to deal with him at all. They viewed him as a a sort of a little Hitler kind of figure. They were very disparaging against uh, about him. They they preferred to deal with the sort of older generation of um, of Gold Coast nationalists who were more moderate, more more patient, I suppose. Um, but um, and Krumer had really seized the initiative by campaigning for you know independence now, basically. Uh, and by 1956, um, that process has become pretty much inevitable. Um, so it's it's during that year that the the formal um, process of decolonizing the Gold Coast is is enacted, and um, it's symbolically really important because it, it represents the first um, surrender of, of European colonial power in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and um, when independence for the Gold Coast comes in in I think it's in March 1957, it's a it's a massive event, and for a few years at least, Nkrumah is kind of the um, becomes the icon of of um, the anti-colonial movement um, all across Africa. So it's a really inspirational event um, and helps to kind of speed up the process of of decolonization. I think across across the British Empire in Africa. We're going to stick with Africa at the moment because we're going to head to Algeria, and Algeria was uh, colonized by the French at this point wasn't it in 1956 but something happens in may can you tell us more about what happens with the french and uh in algeria um yeah i mean there's lots that's happening in algeria in 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 1956 it's a year where the um um essentially the conflict between um the national liberation front the fln the algerian nationalists and the colonial powers uh, is really coming to a, to a head. Um, uh, on the 18th of May, there's a massacre uh, near the, the, the town of Palestro where 20 um, young French reservists are killed uh, and their bodies are mutilated. Um, and it, it's, it's um, unfortunately, it's just one of a whole series of, of kind of atrocities that take place in Algeria uh, in, 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 uh, in 1956. But it's really symbolic of the of the way in which that the war um, is becoming um, um, just incredibly bitter, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a sign really of what's to come that that, that um, uh, 
there'd been a hope at the start of 1956, I think, that some some kind of compromise might have been possible. Um, that the, the new French Prime, Prime Minister, um, Guy Mollet, who's a socialist, um, uh, appoints a, a guy as um, to be sort of in charge of Algeria, who's seen as something of a moderate, but but the the settler population in Algeria just won't have it. Uh, they, they essentially um, force his um, his removal, and it's in 1956 really that the the gap between the two sides just becomes a chasm, um, and you get kind of reprisal, counter reprisal um, on both sides. Um, and by the end of the year, we get the, the, the opening skirmishes of, of the Battle of Algiers, which is one of the climactic moments in the whole um, independent struggle in Algeria. So it's, it's a very depressing, very sad, very brutal and bitter um, story, really. I'm keen to ask you as well, throughout the year, there's a lot going on in Budapest as well. Can you explain to us the situation? Yeah, so I mean, in, 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 um, I mean Hungary is one of those countries which is really affected by the fallout of Khrushchev's um, secret speech and um, the leader of Hungary at the start of the year, a guy called Matyash Rakoshi, is one of those little Stalins. Um, he's um, been a kind of ultra loyalist to Stalin and to Stalinism. He's modelled his own leadership approach on that of Stalin and the secret speech causes um, uh, huge problems for him. Um, so much so that he is eventually kind of compelled to step down but in a in a real um mistake really he's replaced not by um uh Imre Nagy, a former um uh, a former prime minister but um by a, a guy called Eno Gero who's just um almost as unpopular as, as Rakashi and uh, really it's the, the story in Hungary is the is the failure of the of the communist leadership there to uh, fully meet the demands of a kind of reformist faction of the party that it sees in, in Khrushchev's secret speech and the kind of thaw that comes from that, um, an attempt to reorient the Hungarian Communist Party in a more reformist direction. Um, and that ultimately all comes to a head uh, in the autumn um, when, um, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets in support of um, Imranaj. Um He's eventually brought back into the government um, and is made uh, prime minister, but it's not enough to, um, it sort of comes too late, really, and it precipitates um, a very harsh uh, crackdown by, uh, by the Soviet Union. We had to throw this one in. So on the 7th of July, 1956, there is a concert by the Fats Domino, which is all about rock and roll music for people who have a little bit young for those of you who don't know what happens at this concert because it just say show um sends waves throughout the whole of america doesn't it yes i mean it basically descends into a into a into a riot um you know uh, they've hardly got uh, started in the, in the in the you know playing their um their set when um you know chairs are being thrown around beer bottles are being hurled um it, it descends into a sort of a, into chaos really and it was it was christened uh, a rock and roll riot. Uh, in other words, it was it was blamed that this this descent into um, anarchy was blamed on the music itself, as though there was something in the music that made people kind of lose control of them of themselves. I mean, the truth is, it was probably much more to do with the amount of alcohol that had been consumed by the uh, the teenagers who were at the concert in the first place. Um, but it's part of a narrative that takes hold in 1956, which is that rock and roll music 
is inextricably bound up with an upsurge in teenage uh, delinquency. And so whether it's the, the rock and roll riot in, in San Jose, um, California, or whether it's um, teenagers allegedly losing all self-control when they're watching um, the hit musical uh, Rock Around the Clock uh, uh, cinemas in, in, in Britain, um, it's, it's seen as um, a, 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 a music which is um, irresponsible, dangerous, um, a lot of commentators claim that it kind of stirs up the animal instinct within teenagers. Um, and certainly in the, in the United States, um, uh, particularly across the, the South, it's tied in with, with fears about integration uh, and the civil rights movements. And it's seen as, 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 as black music. Its popularity with white teenagers is, is seen as subversive and dangerous. Um, and so rock and roll becomes embroiled in a, in a, in a much bigger kind of political battle um, in the United States in, in, uh, in 1956 uh, between the kind of guardians of the, of the, of the status quo and, and people who are seeking to bring about um, social and political as well as cultural uh, change. Um, it's also the year of Elvis Presley. I mean, his um, first hit single, Heartbreak Hotel, hits the top of the charts in America in, uh, in January. Um, and by the end of the year, he's, um, you know, he's on the Ed Sullivan show. He's, um, he's being edited so that uh, you can't see him dancing from the waist down on, on, the, on national TV. Oh yeah, they were worried, weren't they, about the gyrating? They were very worried about the gyrating. They were very yeah. About the gyrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It completely Absolutely. freaked them out, didn't it? All the hip swaying. Yeah, and it was, you know, you know it was seen, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the word, the phrase rock and roll is taken from an um, African-American euphemism for, um, uh, for sex, basically. So it's, mm. it's, it's seen as a sexualized music. It's seen as... Um, as something that is kind of dangerous in that sense as well. Oh my God. What is this? Can you imagine if they saw a Kesha video now? Do you know what? I was thinking exactly the same thing. You've taken the words right out of my mouth. Pretty sure Rihanna's just naked in all her music videos now. I mean, but these scares are nothing new, right? I mean, they're, yeah. you know, the same that, you know, every decade has its own sort of scare about kind of youth culture and what it's telling us about the health of the nation. It's always overblown. Um, uh, and, and we all survive, more or less. So. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Speaking of people trying to uproot the, stra- the status quo, I mean, Alina's picked this one um, from the 9th of August 1956. Can you tell us about the Women's March in South Africa? Yes. Yeah, so- this was a huge protest that took place um, in Pretoria. Um, it was a march on the on the um, the Union buildings in Pretoria, which is the site of the um, of the um, South African government, 
and it was a protest in opposition to the extension of the so-called pass laws. These were laws which restricted uh, the mobility of uh, people of colour in South Africa. Um, it restricted where they could live, where they could work, um, and it basically opened them up to being, you know, stopped by the authorities, uh, forced to produce their paperwork, um, and to justify their movements. And the apartheid government in South Africa announced uh, that it was going to extend the pass laws to cover South African women. Um, and this, um, the pass laws were very unpopular anyway, but the decision to uh, extend them um, kind of infuriated uh, many um, South African women. And so they organized um, a series of protests across South Africa in 1956, um, really all across the country. And then this came together with a, essentially a national set piece march uh, where some 20,000 um, uh, South African women, um, African women in um, some sympathetic white um, supporters um, marched on the union buildings to um, denounce the, the pass laws, to attack apartheid more generally, and to try to deliver a, a petition um, containing hundreds of thousands of signatures to the South African um, um, government. Um, so it's, um, I mean, it's a great event. I mean, the, the photos of the event are fantastic. It's just a great, great mass of people descending on these very imposing uh, buildings. So symbolically, it's fantastic because it shows the kind of the, you know, the, uh, the kind of ordinary um, people of South Africa, you know, taking their protest right to the, the right to the right to the top. I need to add the the photograph you have in your book of this uh, protest is just really symbolic. It's it's just really beautiful seeing all of these women gathered together protesting for something that they want and need. Yeah, and it's kind of inspiring really because it was some, um, you know, it was a very colourful protest. It was a very, it was a very um, good humoured protest. There was lots of, um, there was lots of singing. There was lots of kind of joshing and joking. Um, but there's also a real, um, uh, uh, a real commitment, a real, a real, you know, genuine um, ideological commitment to trying to create a, a different kind of South Africa, uh, to you know, roll back apartheid and have a genuinely interracial and democratic South Africa. Um, and um, you know, the, the long and the short of it, as everybody knows, is that apartheid didn't go away in 1956. Um, if anything, it was. Um, the situation became worse, and so you have this idealism in in the um, in the summer with the women's march, and at the end of the year, pretty much the entire leadership of the anti-apartheid movement, including many of the people who organised the women's march, uh, are rounded up. Um, I think over a, a hundred of them are, are rounded up, um, uh, and they're arrested and they're put on trial for treason, um, uh, um, uh, and so they're they're essentially put on trial for their lives um, in a trial that, that then takes a couple a couple of years to. Um, ultimately, they're all found not guilty, but it really ties up the anti-apartheid movement um, for the for the next couple of years. So um, the Women's March is really inspirational and um, is full of idealism. And um, one of the great tragedies of South Africa um, is that um, rather than seeking to try to um, you know accommodate uh, themselves to to that uh, protest. Um, the response from the government in Pretoria is to is to crack down and to crack down as hard as possible. I think we should uh, we should talk about the man, 
Nelson Mandela, because his story is absolutely incredible. But what happens to him in 1956 that's so important? Well, I mean, he's one of those ones who's um, who is um, rounded up and uh, and uh, and arrested and charged with with uh, with uh, with uh, with treason. Um, uh, so, I mean, this is this is less fa- less famous trial than the, um, the trial a few years later when he is um, uh, sent to, to Robin Island. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, he's one of those those. Uh, those, those key leaders who's who's um, um, who's who's arrested. Um, pretty, I mean, pretty much the entire leadership of the of the ANC um, is is taken out, really. Um, and although um, Mandela and his comrades are ultimately found not guilty and they're released, um, what the treason trial does is it, it just ties them up. You know, first of all, the, all the all the main leaders are are in prison, um, and so they're unable to offer leadership to the struggle. But also a lot of the resources, um, you know, financial resources, intellectual resources, organizational resources that would have gone on fighting apartheid and, and fighting the extension of the, of the past laws instead is tied up with trying to uh, um, secure the, um, the acquittal and the release of, of the leadership. Um, so in a way, from the South African government's point of view, it's quite a savvy move because although they fail in their attempts to get these um, people convicted, they basically um, neutralize them for the next couple of years because they're unable to act as, um, you know, they're unable to devote their own energies to the cause. And if you like their cause, the cause, the movement that surrounds them is is deflected and distracted uh, by the, the treason trial. Tell us about Vietnam. Yeah, no, so the French lose um, in Vietnam in, um, in 1954 at Dien Bien Phu. Um, in 1956, there was supposed to be um, an election in Vietnam that would um, theoretically would would um, uh, create a government for the that would that would undo the temporary division of of, the, of Vietnam of North and South Vietnam. Uh, the the South Vietnamese uh, leader, um, the, the government there, backed by the United States, announces in 1956 that that election won't go ahead. Um, so it's 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 a it's a kind of a staging post on the the road to what becomes the Vietnam, uh, uh, what becomes the Vietnam War. So th- there was a possibly a chance in, in 1956 for, you know, a, a unified um, independent Vietnam to come into existence, but, but that path is one that's not taken. I'd really like your take on the Suez crisis. Yeah, so I mean, the, the Suez crisis is, is, is prompted in part by the, um, the nationalisation of the Suez Canal by the Egyptian leader, um, Gamal Abdel Nasser in um, uh, in, uh, in July, um, a, a company that had been co-owned by Britain and and and, and France, and the British Prime Minister Anthony Eden is um, particularly um, kind of exercised by this. He 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 doesn't trust Nasser. He views Nasser as a kind of a proto Mussolini. Um, he's determined to um, to get the canal uh, back. Uh, but also becomes determined to overthrow NASA, who he views as a, as a as a kind of a very dangerous threat. So basically, to sort of cut a long and complicated story short, um, Britain, France, and Israel get together secretly uh, to collude in uh, a plan that they think will enable this to happen. So basically, they 
um, uh, they they give the green light to Israel to invade Egypt um, on the pretext of um, uh, I mean the Israelis don't like uh, Nasser they view him as a threat they view him as someone who's stoking up uh, conflict um, by encouraging um, you know Palestinians to launch raids on Israel um, but Britain and France basically say look if you invade um, Egypt um, then we will use that as a pretext to get involved ourselves to restore the peace um, so what happens is at the end of um, um, October Israel invades Egypt and then um, Britain and France issue an ultimatum that says you know unless um, both sides withdraw their forces will intervene will send forces to protect the Suez Canal and to um, restore peace and, and um, Nasser is never going to agree to this because it involves him accepting that he's not allowed basically to um, have Egyptian armed forces on certain uh, parts of his own territory. Um, so, yeah, uh, Nasser refuses and then uh, Britain and France launch an, um, essentially an invasion. Uh, the key mistake they made was not to get the Americans on board. Eisenhower is sort of appalled by it. Um, and he essentially pulls the plug on the operation. So he says, you know, we'll, um, uh, you know, if push comes to shove, we'll, we'll cut off um, oil supplies to, to Britain. Um, and what, what, the, what the Suez crisis does is it really um, exposes the fact that Britain is no longer an independent world power. It can no longer act independently on the world stage without the support of the United States. Um, it causes a huge controversy internationally. Uh, it does a huge amount of damage to, to Britain's international reputation. It causes huge division at home. It ultimately um, results in a complete um, international failure. So uh, Britain is humiliated. Uh, they're forced to um, halt their advance and essentially give up on their project of overthrowing uh, NASA. Um, it forces Eden from office. Um, it also, because it exposes Britain's weakness so um, sort of brutally, it also gives a real fillip to anti-colonial nationalists across Africa and the Middle East, um, uh, uh, who, who basically um, kind of are encouraged by Britain's weakness to, to press for a, a much more rapid end to, to British rule than might otherwise have been the case. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a huge disaster. Um, is the long and the short of it. And it's a real self-inflicted um, wound. Um, but I think it, what it does is it really exposes, rather than causing Britain to become weak, it, it exposes that weakness that's already there, but it's been kind of hidden a bit from view. I want to talk about a subject that uh, comes up quite a lot in your book. Uh, great for me because I'm Polish. So everybody now is hearing up, she's bringing up the Polish history. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about uh, Bierot, who, if you come to Poland, his name, everybody knows who Bielot was. But for me, I, I really enjoyed the part where you wrote uh, about his death and that literally he had a heart attack all because of this, this secret speech. But that, that is not the end of my question. Um, I would like you to give us just a broad summary of what you've written about Poland because it is really interesting and it is part of history that I've been trying to push and promote because Polish history isn't really spoken about. It's kind of been closed off for so long. So I, by the way, I've got to say, loved it in the book. So thank you. Oh, thanks. That's great. I mean, my, my, my pronunciation of all the Polish names will be terrible. So you might have to, um, 
uh, correct me, but is it, um, yeah, is it um, Bierot, is that how you pronounce? Bierot, yeah. Yeah. So I think he's in quite bad health when he goes to Moscow for the secret speech. I think he had pneumonia, uh, was suffering from pneumonia, but he was, um, uh, but he was, he was hospitalized during the 20th Congress and then was told about the secret speech in his hospital bed and, and then apparently suffered, a, the shock was too great and he suffered a, a heart attack and it sort of finished him off really. Um, uh, but um, um, but Poland is alongside Hungary, the country in Central Europe, which is most affected, I think, by the secret speech and the aftermath of the secret uh, speech. There are two big events. One happens in the, um, in the early summer in, um, in, in Poznan, where uh, there are mass protests um, that coincide with the uh, international trade fair that takes place in that city. Um, and the protests which are motivated in part by um, um, economic grievances um, uh, motivated by um, complaints about the inefficient way in which the factories in Poznan are being run, um, uh, their protests against um, uh, bank-dated pay and, and taxes. Um, and so, you know, thousands of people take to the streets to protest. They're not protesting to try to overthrow the communist regime in Poland, but they're protesting against um, the way in which um, the local communist party is is um, kind of guilty of incompetence misrule uh, and so on um, anyway the um uh, uh, the new polish leader a guy called is it edward okab um, yeah. uh, he decides to crack down there's a lot of cracking down in this book uh, so he sends in the uh, gives the okay to send in the polish armed forces to crush the protests there's a very brutal um, attack on the on the Poznan uprising, and it's basically suppressed very effectively. Uh, but by the autumn, there's another much bigger sort of um, uh, uprising, which is uh, really it's similar in Hungary. Really, there's an attempt to kind of um, uh, to rally support for more moderate communists, uh, communists who are seen as more more patriotic, more nationalistic. Um, and so you get massive crowds on the, on the streets of Warsaw, maybe up to half a million uh, Poles take to the streets um, in, in support of um, uh, a new, more reformist leader, um, a guy called um, Gomulka. And um, it's sort of touch and go really as to whether the, um, the Soviets are going to allow him to remain in, in power. They're, they're very worried by, by these huge crowds of supporters on the streets. Um, there are rumours at the Red Army to intervene. In the end, um, Gomaka is able to convince Moscow that he's got the situation under control. Um, and so although um, uh, Moscow comes very close to, to a, um, a military intervention in Poland in, in 1956, during the so-called Polish October, uh, they don't. Um, so the story in Poland runs quite similar to that in Hungary up until the final stages. In, in Poland, they're able, the leadership there is able to persuade Khrushchev um, and the Politburo that they can control the situation and that ultimately there's no real risk to continued communist rule in Poland. In Hungary, Imre um, Nodzi is unable to do that uh, and so it precipitates a, um, a Red Army invasion uh, that crushes the, the protests in Hungary. So. Um, but th there are links between the two as well, because 
a lot of the people that take to the streets in Hungary to begin with do so in solidarity with Poland. So, you know, the more you look at these things, the more there are things that are sort of interconnected. Um, um, and there are kind of rever reverberations between Poland and Hungary in the autumn. So in your opinion, what was the most significant single event? Because everybody knows what the mine's going to be because I won't stop talking about it at the beginning. But what would be for you? Oh, my, that's a really, really hard... Um, that's a really hard um, question. It is a hard. Sorry, I mean, we we lo we love to challenge yeah, our speakers just a, know, just know, a little bit. <laughs> um, I think, I think probably the secret speech is the most is the most consequential event of 1956, because it has so many reverberations, not just in the Soviet Union but throughout the whole communist world. Um, I think it was. Um, um, Eric Hobsbawm that said that the um, the Bolshevik Revolution created the World Communist Movement and the secret speech uh, destroyed it. Um, I think I think so. I think I'd go for that just because you know it has reverberations in the Soviet Union. It causes all this all these um, um, tumultuous events in in Central and Eastern Europe. It helps to fuel the Soviet um, the Sino-Soviet uh, split, but it also causes huge problems for communists and communist sympathizers in the West. Uh, as well, um, so I think I think I would if you if you if you force me to pick one single um, event from 1956 that proved to be the most important, I would say the secret speech. I'm very you've made me very happy today. Thank you very much <laughs> for agreeing with me. So can you tell us a little bit more about what because you've got a new book coming out, haven't you? In a couple of months. Do, yeah, yeah. Can yeah. you give us just a quick what what is it about this new book? So this book is about uh, a trip that, that Fidel Castro took to New York in 1960, um, just a year or so after he'd um, succeeded in um, overthrowing uh, Batista and installing a revolutionary government in, in Cuba. Um, and he goes to New York for the opening of the 15th uh, General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, and it's kind of a key moment in, in world history. Um, the 15th General Assembly uh, sees the admission to the United Nations of more than a dozen newly independent African states. So it's it's a key moment in the history of of decolonization. And um, uh, Castro goes to New York. He spends one day in his fancy Midtown hotel before uh, storming out after a dispute about money with the hotel's owner. Um, he marches off to the UN, threatens to set up camp in the gardens there before relocating to Harlem and the Hotel Teresa, and then spends the next 10 days kind of using the Hotel Teresa as a base from which to kind of annoy the Americans as much as possible. So his first guest is Malcolm X. His second guest is Nikita Khrushchev. And he meets with, <laughs> with NASA. Uh, and he just meets with everybody. And he just uses it as a platform for attacking the... American um, imperialists for denouncing Western colonialism for promoting. Is Hoover still around at this point? Oh yeah, J. Edgar Hoover is going. Um, is going. So mad, he'd be going yeah. ballistic yeah. over at the FBI, wouldn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, 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 yeah. I mean, and it just um, it, it's it's a key moment in the kind of um, the, the the deteriorating relationship between between America and Cuba, and a key moment moment in the in the kind of um. um the burgeoning relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union. So, I mean, 
uh, Castro literally hugs uh, Khrushchev outside of the Hotel Teresa. So it's a very powerful symbolic moment in, 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 in the kind of shifting geopolitics of the Cold War. Um, it's also great, there's a, there's a reception um, that's held in honor of, of Castro where people like Allen Ginsberg turn up and um, everyone's kind of fating Castro and uh, Ginsberg asks him when he's going to legalize marijuana in Cuba, um, uh, which is, I think, the only time in the whole trip that Castro is sort of stumped for words and is rendered momentarily speechless. Um, so it's, I think it's a really, really fun um, kind of episode that brings together the kind of the, the cultural politics of the 1960s, the, uh, the Cold War and the history of, of, um, of, uh, of decolonization. You, um, you actually included Fidel Castro on your list in 56, but I decided to go against that one because obviously we'd uh, love to have you back on to talk about this new book. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, pleasure. Join us tomorrow for our 200th episode. Neither of us can believe it. This is a listener request. We will be talking to Joseph Ricci about the Western theatre of the American Civil War. Forget Gettysburg. It's all about the mighty Mississippi and what's going on on the opposite side of the conflict. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.